Hi, this is Jill Shaw, and I'm here with Ross Wilson. We're here to introduce a special series of Last Night at School Committee, focused on the search for a new superintendent of the Boston Public Schools. It's seven episodes, including a compilation of views that we heard from 14 important community leaders in Boston. And individual interviews with the past six superintendents of Boston, including Tommy Chang and Brenda Casilius. We ask these guests their views on the type of leader that Boston needs now and the priorities for our public school system. The question is, Ross, who will be successful in the role? Yes, and what can Bostonians do to make the next superintendent's term impactful and successful? Today, Ross and I are joined by Carol Johnson, who served as superintendent of Boston Public Schools from 2007 to 2013. Carol, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for this superintendent series. We really appreciate you coming on today. I appreciate being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, so you were superintendent from 2007 to 2013. Just tell us a little bit about what it was like to work in Boston. Like, what were your favorite parts of Boston and working in the Boston public schools? Well, it's hard to name one thing that was like my favorite part of Boston, but I, I will say that working with and learning from Mayor Menino was just a tremendous gift and blessing. And so when I think about Boston, it's hard not to think about Mayor Menino's leadership, his persistent drive to improve schools, how much he cared about the community in every aspect. And if anything ever happened in the community, he kind of arrived there before I could get there, whether it was in the schools, whether it was in the community. And he was just comfortable in every single neighborhood. And I think was loved in every single neighborhood. I I couldn't have been more fortunate to have worked with Mayor Menino. Carol, so you came to Boston from working in Memphis and Minneapolis. What was your reaction when you found out that you were going to be the superintendent of Boston? Well, first of all, I already knew Superintendent Tom Paisant. And I had admired him from a distance, his work on academics and instruction, his work on creating small high schools. And so... While I didn't know a lot of people, uh, when I came, I felt really positive. And actually, throughout my tenure, he was only a phone call away. So I really felt like I could call him for anything. Mike Contapasas was the interim, and he helped me make a smooth transition. And then Bob Peterkin over at the Harvard Urban Superintendents Program uh, was very helpful with my transition. So in a way, I was really pretty blessed I was sort of building on some success that had occurred with Tom Paisant, had a strong mayor, a team of support. And I would say this across Memphis or Minneapolis or Boston, even though these cities are very, very different, the issues of equity, the challenges of fiscal resource distribution, all of those issues are similar across the cities. But what is unique is that every one of these communities has a unique culture a unique history, a unique context. And it's not like you can just transplant ideas place to place. You really have to get to know the community, know the community deeply, and really appreciate the unique history and aspects of everything that Boston represents. I'm just delighted that I had really talented leaders not just at the central office, I would say, but Boston had some of the best principal leaders, teacher leaders. And so Boston is full of human talent, full of lots of nonprofit support. 
And so I felt like even though I made this transition, I was able to capitalize on that. And and the only other thing I will say is this. I served under three really outstanding board chairs, Dr. Liz Rylinger, then Reverend Groover, and then Mr. Michael O'Neill. And having strong board leadership, I think it's just critical in, in the work that we do. And then having other people who were connected to the community in deep ways, you know, Alfreda Harris or Marshall Rayner, they were able to connect me to the community in ways that I otherwise might not have been connected. And so that really helps when you make that kind of transition. Carol, coming from the Midwest and from Memphis, was it as easy to start working with and building relationships with the community here as it was in those places? Boston's kind of known to be culturally colder. Maybe it's the weather. I don't know. But more difficult to build relationships uh, very quickly. How how did you feel entering from somewhere else in the country into Boston? How easy was it? I didn't experience Boston as cold. I, I, I didn't. I did experience it as having very unique and diverse communities, a broader definition of diversity than just black or white or black and brown, but really a lot of international community, a lot of language difference. And so getting to know the cultural diversity and the community diversity across Boston, because it's a community-centered city, was absolutely critical to the work that you have to do. So, you know, the South is different in some ways, right? Memphis is very Southern hospitality oriented. Minneapolis is a very uh, progressive city. So, I mean, they all present very unique opportunities for engagement. And I have to say, I've loved every job that I've ever had. So I found Boston to be a great job. Let's talk about some of those key initiatives that you accomplished when you were in BPS. I could start with a couple. Your work on expansion of arts curriculum and arts opportunity. So every student in the city had weekly arts instruction was amazing. And a lot of people point back to that as the start of a really rich arts curriculum and instruction in Boston. You also did a phenomenal job of decreasing dropout rates. I think you decreased dropout rates by 40%. And at that time, you started going around and making sure that we were door knocking and making sure we knew where every student was and what they were doing. But I'll let you highlight some others of the work that you did when you were in Boston. Okay, so here's what I just want to emphasize as strongly as I possibly can. I really led a team of people who did extraordinary work. So it was never about the superintendent. It was about a collaborative team of work. And let me start with just saying this. When I first came, Hubie Jones had organized an entire community input process. And when I arrived, I received this booklet that said, here's what the community thinks. And so even though I had to do my own listening, my own input, Hubie Jones had assembled, and I don't know all the people, there were lots of people on this team, but it was advice to the new superintendent. And because I had this roadmap, I was able to take that roadmap combined with what I heard and saw to help us create a team of people who could work on the work. And and I would say this, that uh, Hubie Jones's document included all of the positive aspects that uh, Superintendent Paisan had done, but also highlighted the need for greater inclusion in special education programs, the need for a more intentional effort for ELL students and for training of our teachers to know how to serve both students who don't speak English or are new to this country 
or students whose special needs really prohibit them from making the kind of academic progress we would like to see. They also talked about underperforming schools and the ways in which we had to help students succeed. And even though I felt like the small high school model that Tom Paisan put in place was successful, there clearly were small high schools that weren't working for students. And so it's not as if I had to come up with everything. I had this roadmap from that team of parents and community who said, these are really important areas that need to be addressed. So with really an equity-focused lens, I think we were able to take that document that we had from Hubie Jones's committee and then go out and listen to people and then identify key equity areas so we could see that some students had less arts experiences. Some students didn't have access in middle schools to Algebra One and mathematics. And certainly working with partners like investors, we were able to make those kinds of investments and shifts. We knew that more of our students were going to high school, but they weren't finishing college. So working with the Boston Foundation, we were able to create Success Boston and work with our higher ed partners to make sure we did things that were really important. We identified 11 schools that were really underperforming. And like working with some of our partners, like City Year, we were able to redeploy those City Year cohort members right into the lowest performing schools. And so I think that with an equity lens of trying to make sure that we had schools that work for students and we had resources more equally distributed, whether it's arts or mathematics or advanced work classes, it's trying to make sure that we are really trying to create opportunity. I guess I can't overstate the importance of partnerships in every single initiative that we try to work on. And so it ranged from, you know, creating more accelerated programs with the Harvard Medical School to summer extended learning programs with the Science Museum or, you know, things like City Year, Facing History and Ourselves, or with the collaborative we did around mental health and behavioral systems, because we know that it's not just about the academic agenda we have to be prepared to address, but it's also the mental health and wellness of lots of our students. And this is probably particularly more important during this COVID period than it's ever been, that health and education work in partnership. And let me just mention one thing that I felt like the principals were big drivers of, and I was running to catch up with them. And it really was our early childhood initiatives. The principals were going to training. They were coming back saying, we can make quality three and four-year-old programs. We can do this in our schools. We will create space. We know what quality looks like. We're going to look at the NAEYC quality indicators. So you know, I I don't think of myself as leading the troops. Sometimes I was running to catch up with the the leaders in our school community who were far more talented and knowledgeable, but willing to put in the extra time and effort to make success possible for all children in our community. So I got to add a couple. You you also implemented the vision for a graduate, which was sort of our common vision together of what we were striving for. You also put in very clear goals for our school system around what students should be able to do at the different grade levels. So we're all on the same page. You also bought the Boston Debate League into the city. We're trying to make sure that we put in not just remedial things, but accelerated opportunities. Because what we know when we talk to parents 
is they want to make sure we're teaching reading and math, some fundamental skills, but they also want their kids to have rich arts experiences. They want to make sure their students can participate in debate club. We put in a major initiative around international travel because what we noticed is our more fluent kids during spring break went somewhere, during the summer went somewhere. And we had poor kids who never left, really had never left Boston. And so with the help of Bethany Woods, we created a whole international and we spent the whole year studying a particular country, not just as a tourist, but the economic development, the social constructs, the political governance structures, so that our students understood that they live in a macro world, a global economy, where they were going to have to be able to compete at a higher level. And I think what I was most struck by that is some of our poorest kids would come back from these countries, mobilizing efforts to help a poor country in Africa or someplace, because they felt like they they had gifts that they had never realized or appreciated. And so I think, you know, trying to give all students the opportunities that we believe our most affluent families routinely provide for our students is part of a larger equity agenda that I think we were trying to push, but also we were building on the success that I can't emphasize enough that Tom Paisan had put in place, making it so much easier for the next superintendent just to pick up the ball. And then one other thing that I, I want to say, and I have to really give tribute to Superintendent John McDonough on this, is the weighted student formula. Because, you know, when we started looking at how resources were distributed throughout the city, and I think, Ross, you were on one of those committees, we really realized that. Resources weren't distributed well. We didn't have a way of weighting the money so that our poorest families, our kids who were not on track for graduating, we didn't have a way to do that. And I have to say, John McDonough took the leadership role in helping us construct a way to student form. It probably still needs to be, you know, tweaked and evolved over time. But that was monumental in helping us to achieve an equity agenda that was very student focused and intended to really respond to inequities that our students didn't create, but you know they certainly were the recipients of how we implemented policy. We've just gone through two years of COVID. What else is this new superintendent going to have to confront to even kind of get us back to a place where we can be thinking about all of the things that you're just talking about. Post-George Floyd, COVID, I can't say post-COVID. <laughs> there are new challenges that any new superintendent will face. However, every new superintendent doesn't need to throw out everything that happened in the past. I was fortunate to be able to build on the talents and the history. I inherited some talented people. I don't think that every superintendent has to come in and think that they have to put their own personal stamp on things. I think you need a superintendent who sees the attributes and assets of this community and is willing to really get to know Boston in a very meaningful way. But the issues of health and education are not separate anymore, right? Whether it's mental health, physical health, we have to combine those two in meaningful ways. While you were superintendent, we had Race to the Top, right? Which was really oh, right. the time when there were these federal funds given to the district to implement change. And one of those changes was Common Core, right? Adjusting to the Common Core standards. And we had teacher evaluation. We had all these other sort of initiatives that we were working on as a district. 
right now we have ESSER funding and federal funding coming in to recover from COVID. Is there any learnings from how you led Race to the Top that we should be thinking about now in using ESSER funding for recovery? Well, I think that we're fortunate to have the ESSER funds, but they're short-lived. So there isn't a long-term chef life, which means that the investments that you make have to really be things that can be sustained. One of the most critical areas has to do with talent and talent management. Boston's always been able to attract talented people, but leadership has to work on retaining that talent. Because as you know, Boston lives in a very competitive environment. There are private schools, there are charter schools, there are suburban districts that are right next door. And so your best teachers, your best principal leaders uh, have options. We know that more students are being identified as autistic. We know that we have more students who have mental health concerns and issues. And so the kinds of investments that we need to make have to be in the people who directly serve our children. And we have to think of every decision as being very student-centered. While we can spend money on things that have recurrent obligations, we really have to invest, I think, heavily in the people and heavily in their capacity to respond. If I had to identify one area that I failed in, I mean, there are lots that I did, but (laughs) one particular area where really the next superintendent needs to focus heavily, it's at Madison Park. And Madison Park has struggled for over a decade and I didn't get it fixed. And I'm not sure where it is now because I certainly haven't kept pace, but the economy, the jobs of the future, the current COVID realities mean that our students are going to have to have different sets of both engineering and career and technical skills that Madison Park certainly could deliver. What do you think the most important attributes are of the next superintendent in Boston? The relationship building work in Boston is going to be critical. Making sure that you are familiar with the Boston culture and community or you have ways and people who can provide that kind of added support for your knowledge. And so there's nothing more important than human relationships in this work. And there's nothing more important than being student-centered in terms of the outcomes that you're shooting for and prioritizing what impacts this is going to have in students. But then you have to understand that you have to assemble a competent team. And you don't have to get rid of everybody at the central office to do that. That is, they're very experienced, talented people. And so I have found it very helpful to ask people in the community who they trust, who they count on, and use that information and that knowledge because there's such a wealth of existing talent. And then finally, having a sense of humility is like so important in the relationship building work, because it's not about you. It's really about the students you serve, what the community expects, and how you can mobilize leadership 
and multiply that leadership. You have to believe in the people. You have to work to develop the people. You have to love the people you work with, and you have to do everything possible to ensure their success. And to the extent that you can humble yourself and recognize that you don't have all the answers and that you really do need to depend on the wisdom of the community and the experience and uh, knowledge of the teachers and principal leaders that you work with, you can be truly successful in Boston. Flip the switch on that question and talk a little bit about the Boston community. And what advice would you have for the community in supporting the new superintendent? The community tends to come with great desire to help, but also maybe sometimes competing goals and priorities. And and so what could the community do to help this new superintendent be successful? So there will always be competing interests. Boston is in one community and it's not one group of people. It's multiple entities and we have to find ways to serve all of their needs. Let me say, though, a little bit about governance. So I've worked in school districts like Minneapolis, where the entire board was elected. And they were all elected at large. And so all the members of the school community felt that they had to be responsive to the entire community because they were running for election in the whole city. I've worked in cities like Memphis, where the school board was elected, but maybe three of the members were elected at large and six were elected by district. And of course, I've worked in Boston, where the mayor appoints the school committee and they are not elected. I have to say, you know, I thought the school board in Minneapolis worked well. I felt like all of the individuals were very committed to the whole city. I felt like sometimes there were competing interests that were harder in Memphis. And in Boston, I have to say, having a mayor who was so committed to education and so committed to the community and committed to the community's overall success, I felt like the entire cabinet was at my disposal. I felt like the mayor had said to his full cabinet, if Carol calls you, you respond, whether it's about health or police or fire or public works. I felt like if I needed help, the mayor was going to ensure that everybody in the city would mobilize. I felt like When we had financial problems, the mayor was going to own and be accountable to the city. I felt like when we had labor relations problems, the mayor was going to step up and he was going to own the problem. I never had to own it solely by myself. You know, I guess what I want to say is I I don't know all of the issues that have occurred since I left, but I do know that I benefited from the governance structure that was in place with a strong mayor, a strong set of school committee members, and people who felt like they had to represent the entire community's sometimes competing interest voices. And, you know, I can't second guess, you know, what um, should happen next, but I, I do feel very strongly that having had experiences in three different cities with three different governance structures that the accountability and the listening and the ownership 
that Mayor Menino had was unprecedented. Carol, we thank you so much for doing this interview with us. And thank you for what you've done in Boston. I miss Boston and I will always, always treasure my opportunity to learn and serve with wonderful people. And if I had to say, what do I miss most? I miss the people of Boston most. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Carol Johnson. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. To listen to this full special series of Last Night at School Committee and to view video content, visit bostonsuperintendent.com. Tune in tomorrow for our conversation with former interim superintendent John McDonough. Have a great day.